As the situation in Afghanistan deteriorates with shocking speed, tens of thousands of Americans and Afghan citizens who've worked closely with Americans over the past two decades are confronting perilous conditions as they try to reach the Kabul airport and leave the country. Major news organizations are trying to extract both U.S. and fellow Afghan journalists, even as these reporters put their lives on the line and continue to report from the field as long as they can under dangerous conditions. Meanwhile, human rights activists are increasingly concerned about the plight of women under the new Taliban regime. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is Techtopia. Joining me now to talk about the situation in Afghanistan is the Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist and war photographer, Lindsay Adario. She has traveled in and out of Afghanistan shooting groundbreaking photographs, including of women under the Taliban before the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And she has continued that reporting in the two decades since the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, a period in which millions of women were able to get educated, join the workforce, and come into their own. Adario has written an August 16th article in The Atlantic titled, The Taliban's Return is Catastrophic for Women. She's the author of a book of war photographs titled Of Love and War and the New York Times bestselling memoir, It's What I Do, in which she writes about the incredible risks she has taken photographing every major conflict and humanitarian crisis of her generation played out against the backdrop of the post 9-11 war on terror. Lindsay, welcome to Tectopia. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're currently in London and having documented Afghanistan for two decades, both before and after 9-11, what's it like for you to see what's unfolding on the ground there? Oh, it's so heartbreaking uh, to watch what's happening. I, you know, I just couldn't believe my eyes when I saw on Saturday that the Taliban was getting closer to Kabul and on Sunday that they basically just walked right in. My first concern, of course, was for women because that uh, women really stand to lose the most, I think. Um, I was there under the Taliban in 2000 and 2001. I made three trips under uh, when it was under Taliban rule. And so I know very well what that looked like. Um, I remember uh, women who were educated and uneducated couldn't leave their homes. Uh, no one was allowed to work outside of the house. Uh, except for a few select doctors and medical professionals. Uh, girls could not go to school. Women could not go to school. All forms of entertainment were illegal. Uh, it was essentially a, a city cobble of, of the walking dead. Wow. And, and so, and you say in your Atlantic piece that all will be lost for women. What, what do you think that, how quickly could that happen and what will be lost? Well, I mean, first of all, the Taliban is on a massive PR campaign and they are really trying to make all sorts of promises to the West and to, to international governments around the world that they will not take away all of the gains for women, that they will allow them to continue going to school and allow them to work outside the home. But they do everything within the parameters of Sharia law. And so, of course, the Taliban, when they were last in power, implemented the most extreme version of Sharia law and took away those rights. So I think really, you know, while there are still internationals there, I think the Taliban will be on its best behavior. Even saying that, we've heard, uh, we've seen people getting beaten on the streets. We've heard of the Taliban going door to door, uh, knocking on the doors of people who worked with Western governments. Um, today, German news was reporting that one of the families of one of the reporters was killed. Um, so this is still while the United States is there 
um, getting people out. So what will happen when everyone is gone? Yeah, I mean, some of the photographs, I mean, many of the photographs you've taken have shown this incredible transformation of women uh, once uh, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. I mean, what was it like to see that transformation and women taking on all kinds of roles and, and children going to school, girls going to school? I mean, it was incredible. It, it was sort of like witnessing the awakening of an entire population. You know, it was... Um, you know, I was there when the Taliban fell in Kandahar in 2001, and then went back in 2002. And one of the most immediate things was just getting girls and women and, and all children back into schools. Um, you know, Afghans were really eager to get, get all of the children back into school. So that ha happened almost immediately. Um, and then it was a gradual, you know, I mean, everyone who had been home for years had to be educated and they had to be trained to be professionals in whatever field. So of course there was a learning curve. There was some time before you really started seeing people in the workforce. Um, but eventually just watching these incredibly brave and hardworking women that were also juggling sort of the boundaries of their own families, which were, you know, many Afghan families are very conservative and had to grow more comfortable with letting the women in their families work outside of the house. Um, but watching these women go out and work as lawyers, human rights activists, doctors, nurses, actresses, television presenters, I mean, it was incredible. And, and when you started covering Afghanistan, and you talk about this a little bit in your article and also in your book, It's What I Do, you yourself were a single woman when you first started going to Afghanistan in 2000, and you were not only a single woman, you were an American single woman and a photographer at a time when photography, you say, of any living thing was banned by the Taliban. And in your, in, I love the, the, the visual image you, you presented in the Atlantic piece where you talk about these brown cassette tapes, you know, in the old days, fluttering from the poles and the trees and the wires as warning for people not to listen to music. And, and you describe what you rem remember about the Taliban as the silence of life. Uh, what was it like to start covering uh, the, the situation as a single American woman? And how did you go around it? And, and do you think that silence will return now that the Taliban is back? I mean, there were so many elements in all the things you just said. I mean, first of all, I, you know, I went into Afghanistan as a 26-year-old woman. I was completely naive. I, I had read a lot about, you know, the situation for women under the Taliban. And I, but I was so genuinely believed that, you know, if I do everything in my life with good intentions and I'm going to tell the truth, then I'll always be safe and there will never be any problems, you know. And so I went into <laughs> Afghanistan and of course the women that I was meeting were completely perplexed by me. They were like, you're, you're unmarried and you're 26 and you don't have any children and you're not worried that you're never going to find a husband. And I was like, why do I need a husband? I'm happy doing my work. I travel around the world. And they couldn't conceive of a woman whose main goal wasn't to like get married and have kids. And so ironically, that kind of became a theme for me every time I went back to Afghanistan until I had my first child at 38, which was years later, 12 years later. And then of course, the Afghan women made fun of me because I was there when I was pregnant. And they were like, wait, you're 38 and having your first child? You're like a grandmother. You're like a grandma. And they would laugh at me like, how are you having a child at 38? You and know? you're like, I can't so, win, right? You were like, I can't win. Are you, you know, yeah. You're critiquing me when I don't have a kid. Now you're critiquing me now that I have a kid at 38. 
Yeah, I mean, the the best one was like after I had my child and I would go back and they'd say, well, where is your child? I said, well, with my husband, he's taking care of the baby. And they just couldn't get their head around that. I'd say, you know, I'm the breadwinner. And I would just like make a joke of it. You know, I'm the breadwinner. I'm the one traveling around the world. He's home with the baby. And he, they were like, what? I bet it, it was a great yeah. uh, opening warmer to any conversation you had because you'd get them going immediately. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I look, I love what I love working, I love interacting with different cultures. And I love sort of sharing my own culture and sharing what's okay, in my world with other people, because it's a learning exchange. Yeah, one of my favorite photos in this Atlantic piece that I hadn't seen before is the the female American soldier who took off her helmet and there's this little girl and she's showing her that she is a woman and the and the little girl is so tickled pink at the thought of a, a female soldier in uniform. Oh, I mean, I those those pictures were taken with the female engagement teams. Um, so in 2009 and 10, the, the U.S. Marines sent in uh, women, American women to engage Afghan women because they realized like 50 percent of the population was just basically not being engaged by Americans. And maybe they can win the hearts and minds of Afghan women with American women. And so. I started going around with them, but because the American women were fully kitted out in helmets and vests and guns and everything, Afghan women thought they were men. And so they would go and knock on their door and the women would be terrified. So actually the Americans had to start taking their helmets off and saying, no, we're actually women. <laughs> so it, were the, it just happened everywhere. It was very funny. You know, technology has changed so much in the 20 years that you've been in and out of uh, not just Afghanistan, but war zones around the world. What would you say has been the biggest change in how you and your colleagues cover war technology wise? And will it make a difference now in Afghanistan, you know, uh, especially with the advent of social media? Well, yeah, I mean, I think in a situation like this where I haven't been able to get into Afghanistan and I, you know, I'm actually relying on my translators, people who worked with me as journalists, we're looking at Afghans, you know, people around Kabul, around wherever they can send images from to show us the picture on the ground. Of course, there have been incredible reports coming from Clarissa Ward at CNN and, and others, but, you know, within the next few weeks, I imagine a lot of these Western journalists will leave and we will depend on the Afghans who have not been able to get out because as far as I know, most of the Afghans who've worked with foreigners uh, are desperate to get out. But I think, you know, social media and technology have changed everything since when I started working. You know, if I look at my initial photos from Afghanistan, they were shot on film. Uh, they were now the negatives are completely scratched and discolored. But, you know, I think now we get a crisp image right away. Yeah. I mean, what do you make of the speed at which this political and security situation is unraveled and, and the evacuation to date? Well, I think it's a disaster. I think that it did not have to end like this. I think that, you know, I, I, no one thinks that the Americans need to stay in Afghanistan forever. It was definitely time to go, but we had ample time to do this in a proper manner. We had time to give the people visas who deserved visas to make sure everyone was out of the country safely, you know, and that just didn't happen. There was absolutely no reason to pack up and leave overnight, to leave all of our allies without an air force. I mean, it just... You know, everything about the way this was done is wrong. And, you know, when I woke up Monday morning and saw the images of Afghans clinging from the fuselage and falling from the sky, I just burst into tears. And I thought, 
how can this happen? Like, how can this happen? How can we have such a devastating failure of American foreign policy again? I mean, it's not the first time. It just, it just doesn't make sense to me. And 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 you know, I, I'm sure that in terms of journalists, right? We've we've we're all seeing these incredible photos and videos and the sense of imminent danger. But I don't think it even begins to convey what it must be like on the ground for U.S. citizens, for Afghan citizens, and especially for the journalists having been in these situations. Describe for us like what it's really like and and what we're seeing. It's terrifying because I, I, I've been in extremely dangerous situations before and especially with, you know, men with a lot of guns and whose who's, uh, adrenaline is ramped and, and there's a lot of tension in the air and things can change in a split second. And I think, you know, we've been relatively lucky that the Taliban has, let, has been letting people get to the airport. I mean, obviously not everyone. Obviously it takes hours. It's very dangerous. There have been deaths. But I think Overall, there are people who are able to go and get in, but I think that could change any second. And it also, you know, it's terrifying. You don't know who you'll meet on the way. You have no idea if you'll get to the wrong checkpoint and someone will decide, you know what, you're an Afghan woman, you work with foreigners, I don't, you should die. I mean, you just have no idea what will happen. And I'm not trying to be alarmist, but I have seen the temperament change from one minute to the next in very charged situations. And it's not pretty. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Clarissa Ward of CNN and she's put on a burqa, you know, so she can get out there and actually talk to people and and including the Taliban and just be out there on the streets. But I can only imagine how dangerous it must be even for someone like her with all the support of CNN to be able to pull that off. And I just read that uh, Marcus Yam, you know, the Los Angeles Times photojournalist yeah. who's been shooting some amazing and iconic photos um, was recently beaten. And, uh, and and so I know you've been in similar situations as well. So it must be very difficult for you to see that your fellow colleagues being in such danger. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think, you know, of course, Clarissa's reporting has been indispensable for everybody. You know, I mean, we've really relied on her reporting on the ground, um, you know, from before the Taliban arrived until now. Um, she flew out today. But I think, you know, what's what's shocking to me is the the sort of it was interesting to see the backlash or the commentary on her dress, because, you know, anyone who has worked in that situation knows if you want to keep working, you have to dress the part because yeah. it's the only way to stay safe. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with anything other than being safe. And I think the fact that people were commenting on why was she wearing a t-shirt in the bureau and why is she wearing hijab on the street? Well, obviously are showing complete ignorance to A, what goes into this profession and B, you know, a lot of this is to A, be respectful and B, have the ability to report on the street in a deeply conservative place. Incredible, right? I mean, her her stories and she's absolutely calm in very crazy situations and definitely, you know, wearing that the hijab as a sign of respect, you know, of, of an acknowledgement of the culture that you're in often, you know, opens a lot of doors mm -hmm. as you yourself found uh, when you had to reach out to these AIDS, aid organizations when you first got there in order to be able to even get access to people uh, to photograph them. Of course. I mean, I remember, um, you know, I wasn't wearing a burqa, not the blue burqa that you see in, in, in the photos, but I was wearing a very, very heavy chador and only my eyes were really showing. But underneath that, I was wearing something called a shalwar kameez, 
which is kind of like a very baggy, all, all concealing dress that really does not show any curves or any figure of a female. But the sleeve, um, I when we were driving out to the provinces from Kabul, I was with two men from like a UN, uh, one of their implementing partners. So I was with a small NGO and it was just me in the back seat and the two men in the front. And I remember I put my hand up on the little bar next to the window and my wrist, my my the sleeve of my shirt fell down. So my wrist was showing. And the two men got so nervous because my forearm basically showed right below my elbow. And they were like, Madam, Madam, please. Like it was, it, that was how extreme it was at that time. Wow. But you also say that as a, as a woman, you actually were able to get access because there were a lot of women only meetings and groups that you were able to go to where the men weren't there. And so you actually were able to get the women to open up and tell you great stories. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, much more open than after the Taliban fell, because of course, at that time, there was no media coming back into Afghanistan. So any photos I took, anything I did would not make their way back to Afghanistan. So people were quite comfortable being photographed. And 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 when you started photographing the the men, I, I, tell me again, how, how did you first start doing that? And you eventually got access to shooting men as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, any sort of Western woman or any foreign journalist uh, female that goes into these situations is almost seen as like androgynous. I mean, I think we're really not we're we're, we're you know, I can photograph the men and the women. Um, I think a man can't go in and photograph the women in a private space, in a private home. But a woman is kind of uh, doesn't really have a gender, um, you know, so we are able to get access to the men too. It's not always comfortable. Sometimes they're not used to having a strange woman around, but it's not as taboo as uh, a man entering into a woman's sphere. And, and uh, speaking of the danger that journalists are under, you know, uh, re recently, I guess it was in July, right, that the Reuters uh, photographer uh, Danish Siddiqui was killed and, and mutilated and his body was handed over. I think that was a, an early sign, wasn't it, that things were deteriorating pretty rapidly as far as journalists were concerned. Absolutely. And this just shows, again, the Taliban repeatedly gives assurances that they will not kill journalists, uh, that they, you know, it wasn't them, but it was. And they have killed journalists before and they have targeted journalists before. And, you know, but then again, when they want their message out, they're the first people to use us. And so I think, you know, it, it's very important for all sides to respect the work that journalists do. Realize that we are providing a service. We're not there to take sides. We, we are there to report the facts. And I think for the Taliban or any other group to harm or threaten journalists is an absolute crime. Um, can you talk, so, you know, a lot of people may not quite understand the extent to which uh, reporters such as yourself, journalists, photographers depend on the local staff on the ground, the translators, the drivers and other support staff, in this case, the Afghans, uh, in helping them, you know, get from point A to point B, making sure they're safe, getting stories out. And and the cost of this kind of crazy uh, pullout by the Biden administration in terms of the people we're leaving behind. Oh, I mean, not one journalist that I know can do their work without the help of a local journalist or a local fixer. Um, you know, they are the ones who tell us when it's when we can go. They set everything up. They translate for us. They they get a get they get a feel for sort of the 
the um, the danger on the ground, or if there's no danger, they sort of keep us posted on on the environment around us. Signs that we might not pick up on as foreigners. And so I think what they do, our drivers, translators, uh, our entire local team is absolutely fundamental to what we do. And they're often the ones in the most danger because they live in that community or they live in that country and they are the ones who stay behind. And in this case, that's why sort of me and my colleagues uh, are trying so hard to get Afghans out because we know that that's not safe for them to stay behind. And you're probably hearing from all of your former colleagues and uh, and friends there, aren't you, in terms of trying to get help to get them out? What, did, what are they saying to you and what are you saying to them? I mean, we're I'm on an evacuation thread with um, with another photographer, Stephanie Sinclair, and a bunch of Afghan women who were trying to get out. And it's just nonstop. You know, they're taking pictures of their empty houses. They're sending around pictures of other women who were beaten when they tried to get to the airport. They say that I heard that someone just knocked at my friend's door. Is there any news? When are we going to get out? We're scared. They send voice messages of them crying. Uh, there was just an explosion close to my house. So it's nonstop. And, and uh, what do you see unfolding in the coming days and weeks in terms of the shutdown? Do you see that how many people do you think will be able to get out and how many will be left behind? And then what happens? You've been in places where countries have shut down and you've had to get out in a hurry, right? What What's the sequence of things that could happen? Obviously, knowing that anything could change at any minute. Well, I mean, I think this is the million dollar question, right? I mean, first of all, no one knows how long the Taliban will allow people to leave. Uh, relatively peacefully, um, you know, they might at some point just decide they've had it, that the rest of the people in the country have to stay. I think, um, you know, it's just basically, a, no one really knows. And, and my, my guess is that once the foreigners leave, it will become a different place, you know? I think that all of the rights that people are, that the Taliban is saying they will afford its people, I'm not sure about that, that there won't be any retaliatory killings. Um, I don't think a Afghans trust that. And I think, unfortunately, even though the Taliban is trying to encourage people to go back to work and that, you know, everyone is safe, people don't believe it. They've seen what it was like. They saw what it was like 20 years ago. So who knows how long these um, evacuations will continue? That's obviously a question that none of us can answer. Um, but it seems like the window is closing pretty quickly. I think a sad but telling point in your Atlantic piece has to do with the price of burqas. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it, I was doing a bunch of interviews a few weeks ago with um, with former translators and politicians and people, and and one of my um, translators had had been relocated to Germany, but still had family in Kabul. And I was interviewing her about what it was like, how her family was feeling. And she was saying, you know, the price of burqas, the burqas have gotten so expensive. And I said, really, that's interesting because I remember and and I've seen throughout the years in Afghanistan that is a situation, you know, there were ebbs and flows of security in Afghanistan. And I remember when things would get very dangerous, suddenly women would wear more and more hijab, the burqas would come out more. And as things were, were more quiet and there were less attacks, women would, would they would always cover their hair, but they wouldn't, weren't wearing the full burqas. And so I then had um, my friend Spargai's sister go to the market in Kabul and check a few places. And in fact, they had doubled, if not tripled. Wow, that's incredible. 
Uh, looking back over your two decades of reporting, I know this may be a, a tough question to pinpoint. Are there some images or stories that to you are the most sort of representative of the change there and what we stand to lose? I mean, that's a hard question to answer. I feel like, um, you know, it's really the body of work that's most representative. The fact that you see women in so many different arenas of life, uh, you see them sort of showing their faces, wearing makeup on TV. Uh, some of those women, by the way, you know, were disowned by their families for being actresses or were for appearing on TV, um, you know, but women really just, just watching that sort of evolution of them finding their their voice, not only, you know, not only their voice, but also figuratively finding the sort of their path that they wanted to follow. Lindsay, do you have any other closing thoughts on on what's happening right now and 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 where it's going? No, I just, I mean, look, I'm pretty devastated. I I feel very helpless. I feel like you know, all I do is look at my phone and try to see if there are updates of whether we can get our colleagues out. Um, and I'm just frustrated. I'm frustrated that this is the policy that, you know, that the American government chose to follow um, in ending the longest war, you know, and I and I think it's totally unnecessary. And looking ahead in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And and all of that, all of what we're seeing now is a is the twenty year legacy of those attacks. So it's we're coming into a very very uh, emotional period in our nation's history, and and related to that, Afghanistan's history. I mean, I you know, I I just can't imagine. Also, for the 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 veterans, you know, the American troops who have served there, who have lost friends there, you know, comrades. I I reached out to a few soldiers that I was embedded with over the years, and and I you know, one of them who I photographed uh, carrying his best friend out of combat in a body bag, and I said, you know, how are you? How are you doing? I'm so sorry. I feel like I need to apologize, you know, and and he just said. I feel horrible for the Afghan women and the Afghan, the Afghans, you know, I mean, he, it was so incredible. You know, he, he was so selfless. All he can think about was how tragic it was for Afghans, you know, but I think for, for veterans, this must be a devastating time and for their families and for the families who have lost loved ones. I, I just, I can't imagine how hard this time is coming up on the 20 year anniversary of September 11th. We, we've watched the Taliban take back over a country we fought so hard for. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me on Techtopia and for this fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Chitra. Lindsay Adario is a Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist and war photographer. She has traveled in and out of Afghanistan shooting groundbreaking photographs, including of women under the Taliban before the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And she has continued her reporting in the two decades since the US invasion of Afghanistan, a period in which millions of women were able to get educated, join the workforce and come into their own. Adario wrote an August 16th article in The Atlantic titled, The Taliban's Return is Catastrophic for Women. She's the author of a book of war photographs titled Of Love and War, and she's the New York Times bestselling memoir author, It's What I Do, in which she writes about the incredible risks she has taken, photographing every major conflict and humanitarian crisis of her generation played out against the backdrop of the post 9-11 war on terror. 
a regular contributor to the New York Times, National Geographic, and Time, Adario has reported and photographed from some of the world's most dangerous hotspots, including Afghanistan, Iraq, Darfur, Libya, Syria, Lebanon, South Sudan, Somalia, and Congo. To hear Adario's personal story of how she became a photojournalist, how she covers major conflicts, how she survived a violent kidnapping in Libya, and why she does the work she does, do check out my previous interview with her on my leadership podcast, When It Mattered, episode 35. It's an incredible story. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.